Okay, well, I want to move to my favorite part of the show, which are audience questions. We have vetted them, so there's going to be nothing ignorant or trifling. Nice. Um, Black so we have a few <laughs> Question time. Love it. <laughs> can I can I pay you to do the, the jingle for that? Of course. You don't have to pay me at all, sis. Are you crazy? Black Frazier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's rough. I'm working on it. It's rough. That's rough. <laughs> Thanks, babe. I'm working on my album. If Taylor Swift could do it, so can I. (laughs) Who are you guys? I'm Phoebe Lynn Robinson and joined as always in this Airbnb rental in California. This is my co-producer, my editor, in the love of my stupid life. Stupid life? My stupid life. It's British Bake Off. Hey, babes. Hey, babes. <laughs> I love you so much. I love you too. I cannot believe it's the last freaking episode. How is this season over already? Right? I feel like time has flown by. This season has been nonstop. Yeah. And it just feels like... We've had such great conversations, mm-hmm. so many incredible guests. Very important conversations for the time, I mm-hmm. felt. From very political conversations mm-hmm. to feel-good conversations and just everything in between. Yeah, so it's really like, I'm really excited about today's episode because I think it's a perfect way to cap off season one Me boo-boos. Too. Um, but before we get into that, I mean, I think we need to talk about the fact that we are watching an insane amount of the great British Bake Off on Netflix. We have blown through four, four seasons Four now? seasons this month, yeah. Which is an insane amount of TV to watch full yeah. stop. But the amount of contestants that have just come and gone and I've totally forgotten <laughs> that they even baked a terrible cake is insane. <laughs> I do think that I get too emotionally invested. Like I was in the kitchen the other day <laughs> and I can't remember what went wrong on the bake. So, so but... Michael um, from the 2019 season, I believe it was Michael. He messed up some, like something collapsed. It's either him or Henry. And this hoe bag over here let out the biggest scream. I was like, no! <laughs> and he was like, it's literally a Bakewell tart. It, <laughs> <laughs> literally the cherry came off the top of the Bakewell tart. <laughs> but I can't help it. It's just like, it's such a peaceful show. You get so emotionally invested in everyone's like soggy bottoms yeah. to their crusty breads. And it's just like, 
you know, it's so the antithesis of like American reality TV where it's not about a prize. Mm-hmm. It's not about getting famous. You're just baking because you really enjoy baking. It's not about the competitism or showing everyone else that you're way better than them. It's everyone helping each other. And the score, the music is so good in it. It's just like, <laughs> you just imagine somebody like skipping around a field with a wicker basket, collecting little berries along the way. I wish that like this show was around when I like, before I started dating and I was dating other guys and like they couldn't get it up, I would just play the music <laughs> from the end of the episode when people get voted off and it's just like, but I think in this time of COVID, even though there is a vaccine, it's going to get distributed. That's going to take mm-hmm. a while. I think having a show like British Bake Off be like so uplifting and heartwarming. It's like what we need. It takes you away from the day-to-day reality and puts you into such a good mood, I feel. Yeah. And also, it is Christmas time, Hanukkah time, Kwanzaa time. All the holidays. And I know it's tough because everyone is like, well, not everyone, but the majority of people are unable to see their families. Like, you haven't seen your mom at all this year. No. Because, excuse me, your entire family is in the UK and that's got to be tricky, you know? Yeah, I mean, I FaceTimed with my brother for the first time in a very long time the other day. It was cute. And that was nice to see it, it literally was like I was looking in the mirror. Like yeah. Our hair has gotten very similar <laughs> right now. But yeah, it's a, I think it's tough for everyone, isn't it? Just being so far away during a time that it's usually a lot of people are together. With the yeah. Families. And like it's supposed to be a season of like joy and excitement. Mm-hmm. And like you're supposed to socialize, even if you're a little antisocial, like I can be sometimes like this is a time where like yeah. I would want to throw like a cute little holiday party for everyone who works for me and like. You know, do all those fun things where you can like eat like sweet treats and yeah. like have mulled wine. And it's like just not. What's your favorite Christmas dessert? Oh, Christmas dessert. See, I'm not a big Christmas person, not because I'm anti it, but, you know, I'm agnostic. And so I never celebrated Christmas growing up. Um, What's a typical Christmas? Christmas pudding. That's where it's like uh, you don't like fruitcakes, so I don't think right. you like that. That's where it's like the um, rum or whiskey's poured on top and you light it and it's on fire. Oh, I think I've had that before. We oh, had yeah. it last year. Oh, yeah, I like that then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is bloody delightful. Oh, is that when we went to visit your mom? Mm-hmm. And then you went to the Chewton Glen to get massages? Yes, the most British name oh. for a hotel, <laughs> the Chewton Glen. And people are like, like the thing is like when I, because I think we... This wasn't a present. I think we were just both like, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll just go get like massages. We just come back from Mumbai. We sound so bougie. Right. Well, let's just say, preface, <laughs> December was all about you two. We, ha- we had... You are missing that, finally? <laughs> <laughs> finally? No, it's not. I've got, it. I've got it on recording. <laughs> no, it was about your birthday. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, so we went to Mumbai... And we happen to be in this there at the same time that YouTube yeah, yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Bake Off has a really bad back from 15 years of music touring. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, let's go get some massages. And then... These bitches. Well, the thing is, everyone was like, you're going to the Chewton Glen? Oh, my God. That is so... So posh. Yeah. And, I, and then we went in there. I was like, this literally is like every other Like, building. it looks like a Holiday Inn. Yeah. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> it does. I was like, this is not like... To hate on i was like yeah it just seems standard issue and we made the mistake of going like was it the day before christmas it was christmas eve so it was our fault yeah those bitches did not want to be there and they were <laughs> like 
you're the you're our last clients of the year. <laughs> I'm gonna give it a solid three percent. Like effort. I just looked over and just saw like Bake Off's masseuse just like like pressing like one finger into his back. She was <laughs> massaging me as if she was like she was ordering Postmates, <laughs> like off her phone. Just <laughs> it was a shit show. Shout out to Cheat and Glenn. Like we'll definitely come. <laughs> we will definitely roll through. Definitely not a sponsor. In after tw- that, in 2022, maybe not on Christmas Eve. Yes. Um. But anyway, so like you know. I think that like because we're all missing family, we're all missing home. I'm missing my brother's 40th birthday. Yeah, that's a big one. You know, I think it's good for this particular episode to be dropping this week because the theme is therapy. Dun dun dun. Which is, you know, something that I think historically has been thought of as like a white people thing. And mm-hmm. so given the social uprisings and COVID and unemployment and just all the things I really wanted to um, talk about therapy with black people. And so this is a super sized episode. So we have conversations with two people. Um, first person is Nori Davis, a great stand-up comedian. He has a few um, stand-up albums out. So definitely check those out. We met, at Pratt Institute when I was 17. So he's one of my oldest friends. Yeah. Um, and he's so funny. He's an amazing dad, phenomenal stand-up comic, and an all-around good spirit. And he sort of talks about his journey into getting into therapy, which I yeah. think is so important for black men to be able to be open about. For sure. And then our other guest is Rachel Cargill, who is, you know, an activist, an author, thinker, educator. Um, and she has this... <clears throat> this thing called Loveland Foundation, which is about therapy for people of color. And it was so great to sort of talk about her journey as well. And I think this would be a really enriching episode. You know, I think, I still feel like there were some, quite a few funny moments in there. And like, a for bit, sure. Yeah, and a bit of levity. So it's not like, you know, you guys are just going to be in for like serious conversation the whole time. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Do you want to introduce it, love? Here is Phoebe's conversation with the wonderful Nori Davis. Ow. Hi, Nori. Hey, <laughs> What's up? What's up? It's so good to see you. It's been, I feel like, wait, when did we last see each other? Has it been like almost? Wow. Yeah, wow. I don't. Mm. It's been a real Maybe long like, time. It couldn't have been like that brunch I bought my daughter could have been that long was it that long remember like in when yeah Manhattan, we can yeah. go in there and go inside and eat and sit down <laughs> no mask yo yeah remember when you can see your friends yeah yes see your friends you can hug them touch them and have no concerns of any type of moisture from your mouth getting on them and killing them well no it's so good to like see you digitally and to do this episode which i feel like is really important because everyone is really sort of feeling out of sorts because of the pandemic social uprisings just life in general so to have this like huge episode about mental wellness and health and therapy i think is just really sort of um important and you are one of the people that i've known the longest like we met when i was 17 Cause we went yeah, to or eighteen because we went to Pratt Institute. That's right. Yeah, yeah seventeen. <laughs> I was probably eighteen or something, and uh, we were we were puppies. 
back then. Little yeah. pit bulls <laughs> <laughs> on that Pratt campus telling the telling the white kids, don't go on Myrtle, bro. Like just stay on campus. <laughs> don't shot. Gentrify didn't come gentrification didn't come in yet. So <laughs> the white kids were getting got. <laughs> yep. Yep. You was in the um, writers program. I was in um mm-hmm. uh, our advertisers. I wasn't even like, yeah, we both started comedy there. Yeah. So we Yeah, you know, we go back. it's crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now here so, we are. Yes. And we both are having like really like solid careers. We're able to take care of ourselves, which is really good. But I think that like what everyone is experiencing right now is just sort of like the world feels like a very sort of depressing place. And yeah. you know it's hard to kind of go like business as usual with everything that's going on. So mm-hmm. I guess the first question I want to ask you is like sort of just mentally, how are you feeling? How are you dealing with the day to day that is our new normal right now? I'm mentally, I'm feeling actually very good today. I'm feeling good because I have been lately surrounding myself around people who love me, who mm-hmm. see me for who I am and hear me for who I am. And when you do that, Every, everything else is white noise. Like, yes, we have the uprising and we have um, mm-hmm. the pandemic. But when you're around people who share the same views and love for each other and for themselves, um, time is frozen. So yeah. it's, been, it's been actually very good. It's been very good for me uh, mentally. I'm not saying yeah. out there in the world, but like mentally, yeah, yeah, it's good. And there's just a lot of things we can't control and things that we can't mm-hmm. control. We have to just let that go. We have to let that go and just focus more on ourselves. And I feel like that's been a lot of a hard struggle for people during the quarantine, mm-hmm. but a necessary struggle that people need to go through. Can't keep running. That's what I was doing. Like I just kept running to the stage and mm-hmm. running to like, look at this shit. Look at this fucking shit. This is going down. This is going. And then, it's like, I, I ain't going to go out there and protest because I'm going to hit somebody and I'm arrested. Then what are we going to do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm arrested. I'm in jail. I got I got a case. Uh, so <laughs> it's like yeah. we've been, I, I, you, I focus more on like, you, you know, just like what you're doing, you're doing this platform. It's like, let me find my way of protesting. And mm-hmm. that's like bringing joy to all this misery out here. Like I'm a stand up. So that's what I do. Yeah. So and so right. do you feel, do you feel like with stand up, Cause you know, like for me, I've been doing it for 12 years. I think you're probably 15, 14, 15, 14. Yeah. yeah. This year, 15. Yes. And do you feel like, cause I know for me, like I just, I'm not in the mental headspace to do stand up for whatever reason. I just don't, yeah. I don't know. I just don't feel like I can bring my full self to it, but I feel like you have been able to use it as this way to bring people together and make people feel less alone and also talk mm-hmm. about some, you know, weightier issues. And so I'm wondering if like, is doing stand up really sort of that thing that helps you sort of stay normal, sort of make you feel like you have like this routine, even though the world is turned upside down? Yes, because that's yeah. my only voice I have it, mm-hmm. that I can that I'm passionate about. That's the voice I'm passionate about and how I can just turn pain into joy. And it's such a challenge every time and it, it hurts a lot t- i tell you about it uh, but it's my tool and um the audience is my uh they're like the sac- saxophone and i want to play them you know what i'm saying and mm-hmm. get those laughs and and just give people a break from the reality just like we've been doing like before covid and we was locked down you know so it has been definitely this bridge of normalcy through all mm-hmm. the chaos of of focus and love and and writing and doing something I, I 
I'm, I'm passionate about, which is infectious so that mm-hmm. people catch that too. And then they have a good time. And then once that's over, we just go back to the crazy bullshit. But, yeah. but, <laughs> but for that hour or 51 minutes, you know, my album or whatever mm-hmm. I, I'm doing on, on Zoom, it's uh, time has frozen, it's gone fast and we had a good time. And we closed yeah. everything out for a bit. And I think people need that type of relief, just like going to the bathroom, just like peeing, mm-hmm. just like eating. Same. It's, it's the same daily routine. Laughing is mm-hmm. right put into that. It's a pinnacle part of your life. Yeah. So I know you've been going to a lot of protests, which I think is amazing. And, you know, not everyone can do that. So it, there's no judgment there. People listening haven't been able to make it to one. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, this it must bring up like a lot of emotions because, you know, especially what happened with George Floyd, what happened with Eric Garner, what happens with like, you know, Tamir Rice, like all these black men, no matter the age, they're just being victimized by the police. And so I'm wondering sort of like what, like what mentally and emotionally you're feeling before you go to these protests, during these protests, and how do you sort of bring yourself back down and can sort of find some peace and happiness after going through such an emotional experience as attending these protests? Um, I think it's just conditional of what being Black is. Even mm-hmm. before people started finding out, the world's waking up. Like, I call George Floyd. He's like our Jesus to everybody mm-hmm. else of like, oh, he sacrificed so now the world knows. But it's like, he didn't, man. It's We've been going through this ever since we were kids. Hearing our parents like, look at this, man. What's the name? Uh, Rodney or... Um, uh, uh, um, Rodney King, oh, Rodney King, and yeah. um, the other um, a double uh, with the plunger, him, like mm-hmm. all these horrible, heinous acts. Tamir Rice, and even before that, um, um, Trayvon Martin, that uh, you know, mm-hmm. nothing like that. Even Colin Kaepernick, like all this hurt, all this non, no accountability mm-hmm. from our country, from the police, and we just continue going on into work. And our boss was like all right, you got to do this shit. And it's just like, I just heard somebody just got murdered and I just got to act like I didn't hear that. I just have to like swallow that, forget about it, feel that void of nothingness, feel Mm. not, uh, not mattered at all. And uh, find the inner, um, find the inner um, love within myself and, and other peers who are going through it too. Like, that's why you have like other black coworkers or you have your family, you have Mm -hmm. people to lean on to uh to keep you going and like you know my best friends and and my family and uh and then comedy too and then that's the platform to figure it out to turn it into pain so it's just nothing new it's just always we've been we've been conditioned to see a see a murder no accountability and then keep going on like it never happened (laughs) so yeah it's it's so trash but we we have like i said we condition ourselves to know like how we can keep going and now that there is like this type of world awakening we can mm-hmm. just like hey yeah thank you now come on continue on and it's still it's still the same way so we're now we're just leaning on more people to help us cope who don't look like us you know we have white yeah. people you have the little white babies in the street on TikTok. You got the Korean people, you know, the, the K-pop niggas. They, everybody out there, <laughs> like, interrupting it for us. And we're like, thank you, thank you. So we're just going to sit back here and allow y'all to, like, push it forward because now the older white people and baby boomers and the white supremacists, them, that their, their children are in the street screaming Black Lives Matter. And that's where yeah. the generational change will come. That's where the hurt will finally get some healing. And some yeah. accountability. So that's 
that's it's 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 good. It's looking forward. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And so I know a lot of a, a lot of people during this time are sort of like, you know, I think Michelle Obama recently mentioned that she was ha- suffering from like low level depression during this time period. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are feeling that as well. And I know you just recently started going to therapy to sort of just like kind of like put yourself in a better sort of mental position to sort of cope with the world. And so I'm wondering like yeah. how you got to that process. I think a lot of people, there's the stigma. There is sort of like, well, I don't know if I have the resources. I don't know if I can afford it. There's a lot that goes into like taking that next step to really take care of your mental health. So I'm wondering like how you got into the position where you're like, okay, I think this is something, this is the path that I'm going to go down. Yes. The path definitely getting there was um in quarantine through a, you know, mm-hmm. breakup. And definitely uh, it was it was a bad breakup and but a very necessary one because of yeah. I was I was experiencing emotional and physical abuse from my partner. And when I got out of it, I really needed answers of like, how would I allow myself to continue a relationship like that for two years during a par- pandemic and also the uprising? So yeah. when I got out, it was um, I, I hit up. My homie, and it, it was great. It was like therapy really came on this like black market word of mouth. Like, yo, I know this therapist; she can hold you down. It's like, oh, word, she got the hook. It's like, okay, but black people should have to like, no, you need this. Like, yo, here's her card. Or like, not you know, hit text me the number, and mm-hmm. I hit her up, and she just and it was a black woman, Vladimir. She uh, has an Instagram called Therapy for Black Men, and it's just mm. awesome, and it helped me heal my inner child and really looked at life through a different perspective like oh we mm-hmm. that's right we all were babies we all were six eight years old little kids mm-hmm. and we're just out there at this blank hard drive and then we're just taking in whatever we learned and and so I just realized my inner child had a lot of neglect from older me and mm-hmm. I just left them there and never gave them attention and that's where the depression that's where uh, me allowing that tox- toxic people in my la- life mm-hmm. and um, and depression, all that. So when I healed him and still continuing that journey, it's, it's a continuous journey because you got to think about like 37. So that was like 37 years of like never even looking at little Nori ever, never giving him yeah. like a platform to talk within me. So that has been so freeing. And I just recommend everybody to just remember you. Remember when you were 10, like <laughs> holding your parents' hands or maybe they weren't there. Maybe you yeah. were abused. Maybe they, they were yelling at you. Maybe, um, uh, God forbid, um, sexual activities that were so hard, horrific. Those things are still transitioning and still growing within you. And you have to heal, heal that before you can do anything because it's just going to transfer. Hurt never goes away, just transfers, you know? And once you heal it, yeah. then it'll, it'll die out. So. And then once that therapy happened, I started to see the world more different of like, wow, there's so much hurt out here that has been unhealed. It has not been talked. Like to even to play it devil's advocate. Of, oh, it's not devil's advocate. Just to like put my shoes in uh, the white dude's knee on um, Floyd's neck. Him. Like what hurt did he go through that he can just, um, with no effort, have his knee on this black man's neck? And like it's nothing and have his hand on his yeah. hip like he just finished doing yoga and just breathe. Like what yeah. did he experience in his life with his parents or where he came from to where that's socially fine? Like, yeah, this is nothing to me. That There's that hurt that's not healed. So it just transfers. And there's like we go through R. Kelly. How like, yes, very toxic man what he did. But then you remember like he um, 
was left with his aunt and his older sister, and he was molested as an at nine years old, and yeah. and he was learned how how um to be treated by women, and then he mm-hmm. remembered like I'm not gonna be the victim no more, and then he just grow grew into a, the monster that he he became, and you know now it's finally tamed and like he's in jail, and and so but look at that hurt that he experienced as a kid, where he became and how he hurt all those women. So now all those women yeah. are hurt. So now it's this gremlin effect. It's giz- yeah. gizmo, a little gizmo. <laughs> like, I mean, maybe gremlin, <laughs> maybe gremlin is the best metaphor. It's like you put the little gremlin in the water and it, that's the hurt. And he's like, ah! And then pop, 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 pop. All, all them gremlins is hurt little niggas of himself. And yeah. he can't heal none of them. So let's bring it more, um, I guess, more uh, broader to where look, you can see the police mm-hmm. going against and pepper spraying people that are screaming like, we want justice. Like we are people, we are love, and they just like guard down. <laughs> like shut the fuck up, right. like, yo! What did you go through that you have no empathy at all, and mm-hmm. don't even hear the people that even look like you, like black, white, all that, and they justify it within their head. Mm-hmm. It's the law, or this is my job. We want me. This is my job. What do you want me to do? I want you to do the right thing. Ah, you know, I was hurt a long time ago. Now I'm a cop, so my new daddy is the sergeant. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that's what it is like Phoebe it's crazy yeah. like, I see I do understand like it's um, yeah I don't like seeing black people hug the cops because or hug the army that are down there like yo I'm your brother I'm just like you they hug them but right. they gone that hurt they have like whatever they've been through as a kid whatever they've been through as a young adult maybe dad dead who knows what mom been through and they go to the army that's what the army does. They go into black and brown, poor villages, people, like, villages, towns, <laughs> like we all live yeah. in uh, <laughs> towns. And that's where they recruit. They recruit at foster yeah. homes. They recruit, um, they recruit at schools where like people didn't graduate or prisons. Right. So you have these people that, that don't have any foundation from their family. They have so much hurt. And the army's like, mm-hmm. I'm your fucking daddy. I'm your mommy. Yes, sir. <laughs> so yeah, you, so they out there, black people, like Black Lives Matter to an um, army office official and hugging him. And he's like, all right, yeah, I'll take a knee with you. But once my sergeant says, spray your ass, I'm going to do yeah. it because that's my new daddy. Sorry. And that's America. <laughs> that's like, <Yeah. laughs> there's this, such this unsolved hurt when, um, and so much lack of empathy because mm-hmm. of the hurts that every individual has been through has not healed yet. So therapy needs to be in fucking school. Therapy needs to be mm-hmm. a job interviews. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. even being a police officer, it's just like, hey, man, why you want to be a cop? Oh, you know, I want to uphold the law. Well, yeah, well, tell me about your dad, man. Fuck my dad. All right. You can't be a cop. I don't, <laughs> I don't know about this. <laughs> fuck my mom. And, and, you know, a black man killed my dad. Oh, shit. No. Okay. So yeah. we're going to have to put you on three years of therapy and then you reapply, nigga. Yeah. Because <laughs> we can't have you on the street. With a badge and a gun. Yeah. You see, can you imagine that? You got all that hurting you, bullying, um, being bullied, being neglected. Nobody care about you. Now I got this badge and this gun and this power. Yeah. It's and dangerous. It's so dangerous. And yeah. the danger is not the gun. The danger is the unhealed child within people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, like, as we're sort of talking about therapy, like, I'm just thinking about, like, growing up, 
It's never a conversation I have with my family. You know what I mean? I think right. for a lot of people, they never, you never really think about therapy outside of the images that are presented in movies and TV shows. And a lot of times it's for laughs and it's to sort of like point at how, oh, this person is broken. So then you sort of think like, oh, that's what therapy is. It's not like about sort of like helping people just maintain even like the good state that they're at. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. like when you were a kid and when you were growing up, what did you think? about mental health, mental wellness, mental illness, therapy? Was that even a conversation you and your family were having? Like, what was what Not was it all. like? Not at all. I'm the millennial Black family. Like, therapy is just for white people. And yeah. you can't afford <laughs> it. It's not covered. Like, therapy felt yeah. like the same instance of, like, affording a Lamborghini. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, oh, there's no way I'll ever get that. And there's no way insurance. Does insurance even have that? Like, we know doctor, get checked, dentist. But therapy? No, there's no way that's in there. So when you have this unchecked or even um, this type of therapy, not even type of therapy, but therapy itself, like, it's just mm-hmm. not an option. So it's just like, yeah, I'm good, nigga. Just, you know, brush it off, use a little toxic masculinity or use my niggas and then keep going. But I realized through therapy, like, yeah, I was born through a, an emotional, emotion, emotionally abusive child like I wasn't seen for who I was I wasn't heard Mm -hmm. for who I was and I wasn't loved for who I was and not to throw my mother on the bus but it's just showing how like she's also hurt herself from her childhood so it just transferred to me and then that's how I had these very toxic relationships and and it it hurt me a lot and still to this day like healing from that and Mm -hmm. my mom is like not healing at all like even I tell her about it she doesn't like believe it like I tried I went to the church and a pastor is not a therapist. <laughs> like yeah. you know, they're not at all. So without any healing, there won't be any. So, uh, there won't be any um, moving forward to like being seen and being loved and being for who I am. So you just gotta like let those people go. Like my mom is still like struggling with that, and I just can't let her negativity mm-hmm. darken me. You know, darken my light. So um, sad to say, and. Um, to your question, like, yeah, so no, <laughs> yeah, no, it's yeah. not at all, Phoebe. Yeah, um, maybe the most therapy we had was the social worker, and that mother, that person is just to tell you, uh, get this credit, get this credit, and your ass can probably graduate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> never heard anything in school. Like, yeah. how do you feel? <laughs> never yeah, heard that until like my thirties. <laughs> I know that's like one of those things where you're sort of like you're a kid and you're encouraged to sort of explore and feel your feelings. And then it's like, you get in school and everyone's like, no, everyone has to act the same way. You can't like express yourself. You just have to like learn this information, regurgitate it. Yep. Then you go to college and then everyone like fucking loses their mind. Cause like, finally I could do what I want. So I'm going to drink, I'm going to party, I'm going to hang. And then you're in the workplace. And then it's back to like tightening back up and being this person who doesn't have their own feelings. And I just nope. sort of thinking that we're just, society has life structured so wrong and like not allowing people to express themselves, I think is having all this, these sort of negative consequences when it comes to people's mental health that I think we're not even realizing, you know? Exactly. So we are these pawns going through this Mm -hmm. social system that's been designed for us not to know, like the more ignorant you are, the more less educated you are, the more you're not going to have the tools to thrive, you know? And that's the way they want them. And then when I say they, I guess I say the system that has been mm-hmm. set up in place for us to like, you know, uh, go to school, go to college, 
get a job, you know, which been instilled from our parents. So yeah. it's just been transferred to where like now I'm telling my daughter, like, my nigga, like, just go on YouTube, learn what you want. <laughs> and like, I'll unlock the bigger YouTube for you. You graduated from YouTube kids to YouTube and just learn what the hell you want and then figure out what you want to be. You don't have to spend that money versus mm-hmm. the generational um, system we said in like, go to college, you better get your goddamn degree. But what? Mm-hmm. But you get a job. A job? <laughs> there ain't no jobs out here. There's always a job. I got a job. No, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do your job. So we, yeah, you're right. So we're not, we never felt as an individual. We've never been seen. Mm-hmm. We've never been to express ourselves to wear that pink hair. Or even we're judging people. We fall back into the system, like judging the goth kids or, you know, yeah. the the white kids, the black kids. You know, everybody's just um, not even seeing like, hey, that's how they express themselves. That's dope. Like p- positivity is just not even available in schools or even in our in our um, teenage life. Until we get older and, you know, maybe social media, that boom and finding who we are and loving each other. That's that's how we start finding each other's who we are. And and then you just go with that vibe. Yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering, like, during this process, if you go into therapy, how do you feel like you're able to relate to your daughter differently? Because now you have these tools that maybe you didn't have before. Do you see, like, any change within yourself or within your relationship with her where now you're like, Oh, this is so much different and more open than what it was before. Oh, yeah, it's it's really hard to, to get to my daughter because like I'm, I'm like trying to like develop all this pain because like she her mother is narcissistic and she's doing the opposite of like not having attention but hoarding her away from me. So like I only have a little bit to like see her and I have to get the courts involved for me to like have her and she's using yeah. this tool of COVID and it's just like my nigga, I'm clean, she's clean calm down. Yeah. But that's not, um, she doesn't want to do that. So it's, um, I, when I do communicate through her with text and iPad, that's, I just see so much fear because she, she's only seven and she has so much fear from COVID. And mm. I definitely do want to like have her like more in my custody so I can like unbreak that fear and like, Hey, it's okay. You just wear your mask. You, you wear your mask, you wash your hands, everything's fine. But COVID's yeah. coming. Like, it's in the air. It's going to, we're, we're all going to die. It's like, oh my mm. God, you know, she's sitting in the house on iPad and Animal Crossing, yeah. Roblox and Minecraft, building these fake worlds that are COVID free. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she has so much, she's developing a lot of social anxiety within um, her house mm. and her mother. So I've been, I'll send her videos through text and I'll, I'll try to reach out to when I can. And then hopefully when I get the case and then I can have her more in my, in my presence and like try to unbreak all that fear she has of what's happening. And, and don't, and so I don't have to heal her in a child because she is the child. So just got to heal, get to her uh, right now. Like, Hey, don't be scared of all this. Don't be scared of that. And unbreak those, those things that, you know, that she's experiencing with her mother in the house of like, COVID's going to kill us all. I'm going to die. And I'm never going to school ever. It's just like, it, I understand right. all that, but look, you're, it's okay. New York is better. The case is a little bit down and yeah, I agree with the school thing, but you don't have to keep living in this constant fear of like mm. scared of people at seven. Yeah. You know, um, I don't want that for her. So that, that's what I've been instilling in her. Like just like through text and um, yeah, through text and FaceTime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's tough to sort of because when you are that age, you just sort of like pick up whatever adults are throwing out and the world is throwing out to you. And I can only imagine like 
being she's seven. Yeah. Yes. To sort of in October. Yeah. To live in this world where there is like COVID is this global pandemic. Like it's understandable that she's sort of like, well, I don't want to go outside. Like, you know, I was joking with a friend the other day. Like no more. Yeah. She's like, I don't want to see my friends no more. I don't want to go to school no more. It's like COVID has really fucked these fucked these kids up because like took their graduation Mm -hmm. away, took their friends, there was interaction. So there is gonna be this little What's their generation alpha? These alpha, the generation alpha they are of like. Wait, gen- oh, we start back at A now. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. A cool, Gen cool, cool. Z told me like, oh yeah, your daughter's alpha. I was like, what? What is that? Two thousand, two thousand ten to now. <laughs> That's wow. alpha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. So these little alpha uh, boys and girls are like half of them are going to be split of like. I don't care about the disease. Fuck all that. Don't wear a mask. And mm-hmm. the other half is like, I'm not touching anybody ever again. I'm I'm living as this little character in Roblox and Animal yeah. Crossing forever. <laughs> as if they get a job, then whatever. So I'm really curious to see, you know, um, I, I know her future is going to be all right because like I just, I'm going to be able to get to her in courts. Mm-hmm. And when that opens back up, there's all that stuff. She'll be yeah. fine and I'll be able to like help her out. But other kids... They have a lot of hurt in store and fear. We mm-hmm. have to shed off a lot of this COVID fear when um when the world starts opening back up, even within adults too. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, what do you feel like you've learned about yourself during this whole process? Because I know you like joked about like toxic masculinity and pointing out how you know that's not healthy for anyone. And so I'm mm-hmm. wondering during this process of therapy, like what have you sort of learned about yourself? Um, that's made you look at the world different, I guess. Oh man, I learned so much about myself. I learned I'm a demisexual. I learned that. What's that? <laughs> a demisexual. All right, so I, I'm a person who's only attract. I have to have an emotional attachment to be attracted to you mm-hmm. and to want to okay. be with. You. Yeah, I, I'm not one of those dudes where it's like, "Yo, shorty and they won't fuck." You. It's just like, well, I'm like, what's her name? <laughs> what's her sign? Does she want to go on a date? I mean, what what she want to do? <laughs> <laughs> Does she know her dad? Does she know her mom? Yo, nigga, shut up. Just whip your dick out and do what you got to do. No, no that's I'm, I, I can't do that. I can't do that, Trey. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to just give her my number. Let her know to text me. And we'll go from there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's me. Uh, I learned that about myself. So, um, and I learned that, um, yeah, I, I have been emotionally abused. And it's okay to say that. It's okay mm. to, to heal from that. And it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um to continue to love yourself, continue to see you for who you are and um, and hear for who you are and uh, love yourself. Love little Nori. So I am this adult Nori who is operating my little child every time and listening to him. And that's where I get the self-love. So I'm able to have my voice stronger in my own opinions instead of before then I was just going with whatever like you you could say like hey man i think those motorcycles are racist i'm like yeah they are <laughs> they are <laughs> it's like and then i don't challenge your opinion i just go with it because yeah. i just want you to love me i want you mm. to accept me. so i learned that that is not a form of love or a form because i'm not loving myself i'm using yeah. you to love me and i don't want that at all so i learned that that is not happening at all anymore and um, I recommend therapy for everybody. Find that therapist mm-hmm. you can and find the person you connect with. Keep going. Um, a lot of insurances do uh, afford it. And if not, um, definitely um, 
get credit cards, my nigga. Get credit cards. Apply. Apply for all the shit. <laughs> apply for yeah. everything. Charge it up. Pay charge later. It up. Pay it later. <laughs> pay when you, yo, when you die, just let that shit transfer. That's all you can do, man. It's <laughs> economic. Um, the system is still set up, set up for economically for us to not thrive at all. It's, yeah. It's crazy. I've been starting looking into, like, I don't know, like mortgages. It's how I was like, wow, I really mm-hmm. have to convince this white man with all the money. Like, I'll pay you a hundred thousand back, dog. Damn. Like, <laughs> I promise you. Like, that is that. Are you serious? That's what the word mortgage meant? Oh my God. Um, so it's like, don't <laughs> let money enable you for your mental health. Like, there's no price on your yeah. mental health. Go out there and just talk, man. Talk to somebody who will listen and help you heal. Yeah. And so before we get into audience questions, I want to ask you one more thing, because I feel like doing comedy is also a form of therapy for yourself as well. Like, of course, yes, you love making people laugh and you're so talented. You have your album out and like you light up the world. But like, I'm also wondering, like, what else does doing stand up for you? Like, how else does that make you feel better about yourself, better about the world, maybe eager to like connect more with people? Like, what does stand up mean for you? Oh man, that's a great question. You know, stand up means to me it's it's just such a beautiful risk. It's such a risk. Mm-hmm. I always been a risk taker. Even before I did it, I was like in the street racing and I crashed two of my mom's car and I think cars yeah. and she was on the verge <laughs> of putting me on stunt driver school. And then then me and you met in college and then we did improv mm-hmm. and then we did stand up and then I was just like, oh my God, I can crash and burn on this stage and still be alive, <laughs> but feel like I died inside. So that <laughs> thrill, that excitement, that not knowing is so mm-hmm. scary, but so attractive of like putting words together and having my sense of humor. And like it makes this electric. It makes people react like just laugh. That still amazes me to this fucking day still. Yeah. Um, so that is what I'm getting from it. And then at the same time. I'm making people smile. I'm making people laugh. I'm giving them a break from the reality. I, I always say this to my best friend of like, when we went to go see Kevin Hart, this was um, a grown little man. This is right before he was doing mm-hmm. grown little man. We saw him in Long Island. We just remember the show starting his first joke. And then it was over. And we were like, yeah. wait a minute, what the fuck happened? Like, it was so <laughs> fast. It felt like so fast. He just went in there and just bop, 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 bop. And we felt so much joy after and time went so fast. and. It's like that stand up, just a, a person, or just a person with a mic mm-hmm. can be the Viper roller coaster at Six Flags. Can be yeah. that we, we, we are Disney World, nigga. We are Six Flags. We are entertainment. We are that first bite of ice cream for the first time where like time is gone and you just mm-hmm. ooze in that joy. And then when it's over, it's over. And that's the beauty of it. And I think that's like, it'll, that art form will live on forever, man. It's, it's great. Yeah. And you doing Zoom stand-up? Like, when you first told me you were doing this, I <laughs> yeah. was like, oh, yeah. I can't do no Zoom stand-up. <laughs> this is like so, it's like so weird. Like, it's yeah. like the time delay or whatever. But then when, you know, my boyfriend and I, we went to uh, your album taping and I was like, this works. This so totally works. It's Thank so you. cool. And it it was it was like a nice way to still like laugh with people because I think now everyone's just like at home by themselves scrolling going, <laughs> but they're by themselves, you know exactly. what I mean? Yep, just a Twitch <laughs> forum. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, man. And you still brought that community aspect, and we could hear other people like in California or in Seattle tuning in yeah. and laughing 
And so I'm wondering when you were doing the Zoom album, was that one of the things you were also thinking about is that like, this is still a way to bring people together and still connect, even though COVID is preventing sort of these in-person interactions? Absolutely. It was it was definitely healing through getting the fuck over myself of what mm. the social commentary was of performing online. And yeah. I always admire stand um IG comics of like they're doing sketches, they're full mm. full blown production, which I I always respect, but it's not me. So I'm like, how can I turn that? How can I turn stand up into like an online thing? And Zoom did it. Zoom did it. Yeah. Like quarantine did it, really. Quarantine. Um, but uh, sorry for people that died. Oh my God. RIP to everybody that died. Um, but like <laughs> us in lockdown yeah. helped an artist form. Like comedy, like it, it never dies, man. It just it just adapts. And we and we yeah. did that. And I was able to be one of those people that can find a way to adapt uh these Zoom meetings and having a DJ, then having a comic, and then having me doing like 30, 40 minutes and developing material through there and getting mm-hmm. over my ego at like egos out the window. It's just like mm. I was really getting over the ego, ego gone, and um accepting reality. Just like this is this is how you can reach people. Yeah. But I wish I want to perform on stage. That's gone. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> Just let that go. Let that go for now. It might come back. Mm. It might not. But be at yeah. peace with that. And once I was at peace with that, I was able to accept the Zoom shows and have a goddamn time with it and accept people's digital laughs. And I think that mm. was just so attractive, just hearing people. Ah, 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 ah. And then once they laugh, because nobody's in the same room. So you hear a person laugh and then like, oh, that, that was funny. I'm going to laugh too. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. And then like, it was just a <laughs> ripple effect. And it, yeah. was just, it was beautiful. So it was, it was awesome. And um, I think I might have to like do it again because like these outside shows are happening. I'm doing my mm-hmm. first outside show tonight and I've been seeing them and it's like, like the laugh just leaves into the air, you know? Yeah. And it's still condensed within Zoom and, and plus winter's coming, nigga. So yeah like, no outside got, shows yeah yo, it went to, it's coming that, we ain't gonna be doing outside shows in our snorkel jackets you know <laughs> uh, so, who knows how we are as a country and you know vaccine mm-hmm. uh, the vaccine and our phases or people actually respecting it but i i definitely am not too proud to like go dust off that zoom app and, and up my membership again because i de- i decreased it <laughs> After I'd done the album, I was like, I'm not paying this no more Zoom. Thank you. Thank you for the good times. But <laughs> I am free 99. Um, but yeah, once winter comes for you, might have to get back in there, you know, and then just like yeah. continue to bring joy to people during, and, and work and uh, do what keeps me sane. Yeah, I like that. I yeah. might start doing some Zoom comedy shows. Because you're right. Because I do think you're talking about the ego of it. Like, it's just... Because it's like, it feels so different than what I've thought stand up to be. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, this, I don't know if I can fit in this. I don't know if I'll be able to do it. I'm going to fail. I'm not going to be good. And I think you're right about like taking your ego out of it and just adapting. Because at the end of the day, comedy is about making people feel good and connecting and not about just like, oh, is it going to be perfect for me? You know what I yeah, mean? Take yeah, take that risk. Yeah. yeah, just take that risk. And and you got to yeah. know the people that are in those links, they know it too. So you're not yeah. alone. It's kind of like that, you know, as as we, you know, actors, we trick ourselves to like, we have to tell ourselves like, oh, the casting director is on my side. <laughs> They're not yeah. the enemy. They want me yeah. to, they want the best performance. Same thing with the audience in the Zoom. You know, they they definitely want you. They get it. 
and they, they mm-hmm. appreciate it. So it's like you really can't lose. You really can't lose. Yeah. You can just you'll feel the same things you feel when you're on stage. <laughs> you'll feel that. Yeah. Throw that joke out there. And you'll think your Wi-Fi is broken, but it's not. It did not work. So keep going. <laughs> Let's get the next one. And then you just keep going. And then, all right, good night, Apple Q. <laughs> and you sit in your couch and just, oh, what the fuck was I thinking? And then you, all right, you get back out there because um, it's, it, um, that's, that's, that's the job. That's, that's the work. That's what makes it mm-hmm. so special. Now that, and they say that everybody can do it. And it's the same. I feel the same effects we before COVID and the same thing I feel on Zoom is the same thing the bombing and getting a great laugh it's all the same yeah. effect mm-hmm. yeah I love that okay Thank well you. I want to move to my favorite part of the show which are audience questions we have vetted them so there's going to be Ooh. nothing ignorant or trifling nice um, Black so Frasier. we have a few <laughs> question time love it <laughs> can I can I pay you to do the the jingle for that of course you don't have to pay me at all sis are you crazy Black Frazier <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's just, it's rough I'm working on it it's rough that's rough <laughs> um, okay so this first question is from Mariah in Denver Colorado Word, so she Denver. writes she writes hey Nori big fan of your work nice Aw, that's Aww. cute um, she also writes love you too Phoebes I was like okay that's more of an afterthought but thank you <laughs> Uh, yeah i'm here too thank you all right thank you <laughs> i mean it is my show bitch but fine <laughs> no cool <laughs> um okay so she continues okay here's the deal my boyfriend and i've been together for a few years and we're doing well just minor stuff that every couple goes through mm-hmm. um i would like to try out couples therapy because i don't feel like our communication is the best but he's resistant Mm. He says it will cause drama and he doesn't want someone else in our business. Mm. And I'm like, okay, but Michelle Obama wrote about her and Barack doing couples therapy and they're still together, LOL. But for real, shouldn't he just suck it up for me and go, this is truly important to me? Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yes. And it's not even about him sucking it up. It's, Mm. I guess, asking what is he resisting about? Why? What? what, Oh, yeah. that, That somebody's in their business. Yeah, but yeah. But that somebody is a neutral person that because mm-hmm. I guess what they're butting heads with, they're not hearing each other at all. Somebody's somebody's listening and the other one is not listening. So when you have two people yeah. that's not listening to each other, nobody's being hurt. And yeah. uh, I did couples therapy before, but it didn't work because we had major problems then just couple therapy can fix. It was just like, no, nigga, this is over. Yeah. But, <laughs> if, <laughs> but for them, uh, yeah, it was like a narcissist. So like, I think with her boyfriend, that for how long they've been together? Ten? She, uh, Mariah says uh, a few Six? years. A few years. Okay. Yeah. yeah I yeah, feel yeah. they definitely should try it and try to um, talk to him more about like this person is going to help us communicate better because I don't like how you're communicating with me and mm-hmm. I don't like, uh, and you don't like how we're communicating. And, and I think we just need to figure this out and it's okay. So try to give him that comfort of like, look, it's not about somebody in our business. This person is professionally to help us communicate mm-hmm. in a better way because I want the longevity for us. You want the longevity for us? Yes or no? And then you have that conversation because that's a different conversation because, yes, yeah, you never be um, sad or even upset or even um, feel ashamed to want to do couples therapy with a person mm-hmm. and heal each other. So there's something that's definitely a hurt within him that he's like, he, um, 
lot of fear right there of like, yeah. I don't want somebody in my business. And so that's isolating. And she shouldn't be isolated mm. to like to getting help for that relationship. And then if you still feel that resistance, then girl, you're gonna have to go into another plateau of like, yo, what's really stopping us? Cause I, I just feel stuck. I'm just I'm just being dragged along in this relationship. And life is too damn short for that, Denver. So definitely yeah. uh Keep challenging him. And then if you don't get the answers you have, then have a, another conversation of, of like, look, what are we going to do? Because I don't like how we're communicating. And communication is key. If one person mm-hmm. has to hear the other one, that's key. And, and then respect that and then make that change. Yeah. And it's also not looking at the therapist as someone who's trying to, it's accusatory to be like, oh, this person's trying to cause drama. They're trying to cause division in our relationship. Instead of seeing this person as a helper, I think maybe the boyfriend could sort of rethink how they think about the therapist's role with their 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 clients and their patients. Because I feel like thinking like, oh, you're going to try and make this this whole dramatic thing or like break us up. is just such an extrapolation and not rooted in what therapy is about. So, yeah, cause when I, yeah, yeah, I agree for you because what I, I there was that fear when I was trying to do couples therapy, like this person gonna take her side, and I won't get my fucking point out. And mm. I just remember within that is just me having that lack of confidence and love that I'm not gonna be heard. So why I don't want you double teaming me? I don't want to hear that shit. So it's not that, sir. It's not that. It's definitely like if this woman like really she really loves you and she wants to like communicate more with you. So. She has to help him probably maybe get therapy on him by himself. Yeah. So he can work that out. So man, that might be the best advice to guys. Like help him get therapy for himself. Like you even like, yo, I'll give you one session by yourself. You go in there, express, mm-hmm. and then we can see if we work out together. Let help him get therapy but beforehand. Y'all do couples therapy. Oh, I like that. Open up. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. I like yeah. that. Well, thank you. Best of luck, Mariah. Mariah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so our next question is from Michael, who's in Brooklyn. Um, right. He writes, I'm going to be honest. I don't know if I can fuck with therapy, even though I think it could be good for me. It's just hard for me to get over that hump. Can I just exercise or do something else and get the same result? <laughs> that nigga sound like me four years ago. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, I'm going to push up. This shit is over. All right, go ahead. <laughs> I feel you. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's funny. And so he he finishes by writing, sitting down and talking to someone just seems, I don't know, weird. So as someone who is sort yeah. of like you just said, this is w- what my mentality was four years ago. What is your best advice for Michael? Um, Bro, it's okay, Michael. It's okay to be vulnerable. I know it's scary, man. Mm-hmm. I was so scared too, but I had to go through a traumatic traumatic change and breakup in my life for me to like, all right, all roads lead to this. <laughs> mm. I have to. And I say as, as experience, don't go through life without healing your inner child or who you, whatever you're scared of. Um, and, and because it's just going to transfer into the next relationship or mm-hmm. to any other unions you have down the road. So it's okay to be vulnerable, my brother. Like, yeah, you can't just do some push-ups. You can't just put water and that Kool-Aid, and that's it. Like, it, it takes a... Oh, excuse me. No, let, let me get a better metaphor for you. You can't <laughs> just throw the turkey in the oven, my nigga. You got to season mm-hmm. it. You got to season it. You got to put a little water down there. You know, you got to base it. You got to bake it, you know? <laughs> and then once you bake it, man, you got a great turkey. And then once you eat it, you got leftovers forever. So look, <laughs> treat yourself like a turkey and not a hot pocket. <laughs> <And> treat your <laughs> mental health 
Teach your mental health like a turkey, not a hot pocket, brother. Like, go ahead, do that. Find one. Find I, I, I recommend therapy for black men if you're a black man. And if you're white, that's fine too. I think she's cool with that. But find somebody. <laughs> uh, I always think it's um, either try the opposite sex. And then if you, that doesn't work for you, then try the same sex therapist. Um, yeah. For me, it was the opposite sex because it's like this, uh, just black women in general, just just know every goddamn thing. Yeah. <laughs> love them. just love black women know so um yeah definitely be vulnerable with yourself and don't have fear brothers all right do it yeah okay great well i hope you do that michael because i think it could be good for you okay yep. so our our last question is from anonymous um okay so anonymous writes hey nori i want to try therapy but isn't it expensive and in these times therapy can seem like a luxury so how can I try therapy if I don't have much disposable income? I just feel like mm-hmm. if I start going, then I would be stressing over the money I'm spending. I'm already having enough anxiety in my life. What should I do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's hard. Um, there definitely are other avenues like of um, inexpensive therapies out mm-hmm. there. Like there's even do text form. Um, <clears throat> and like I think I said before in this episode, try to get you a credit card and, and put that <laughs> shit on there because... You should really never have anxiety putting stress on your own mental health. That is the mm-hmm. most important thing, just like food. So don't have anxiety of like how I'm going to pay for it. It's not a luxury. Mm-hmm. You deserve this. It's, mm-hmm. it's a necessity. Mm-hmm. So a necessity, necessities that you need to live is oxygen. That's free. But food, housing, and therapy is right up there. And we have yeah. to change our mental space of knowing that that is what it is. And that's accepted to be it. You deserve therapy you need therapy to keep going on and so that anxiety of paying of money and it's it's gonna go away because you gotta understand money is just a tool and it's gonna come it's always gonna come universe got your back girl just it's gonna come but the, the money that you spend on your own mental health is just only gonna bring you more happiness more love more ambition more work mm-hmm. and then that's gonna bring more money there then it's gonna be nothing to you so don't have anxiety about paying for therapy have anxiety of that no have don't have anxiety at all <laughs> just have anxiety. <laughs> don't have anxiety at all sorry just um don't spare any expense for your mental health at all and i love just, you putting that it's right up there with like oxygen and food and housing yeah. like i think it's correct to have like your mental health be that big of a priority in your life that's right there you yeah. go that's the word priority thank you it is just know that sis it is so whatever you spend on that's uh, I don't know, a great book that or a, a special edition something, mm-hmm. you know, take that money and then put that towards like finding a therapist. And like even the sessions I go through, like it's like only a uh, hundred bucks a session, you know, it's pretty good. That ain't number five twenties. You know what I'm saying? My nigga, that's yeah. easy. You can do it. You can do it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, and of saving up and even asking your family for help. There are other ways. There are ways to do that. Um, to get out there to um, and like I said, credit card route, but definitely don't spare any. Don't don't feel shame or have any anxieties to spare an expense on therapy. That's a necessity. Yeah, well, anonymous. I hope you really do try and get some therapy going for you because I do feel like it would be beneficial for you, and we don't want money to sort of hold you back from that. That's right. So, Yes. Fingers crossed on that. And Nori, mm-hmm. this has been like so enlightening. I, I really wanted to have the male perspective on here, too, because I think a lot of times like therapy isn't 
thought of as a positive thing for men. So it was yeah. really great having you come on today and sort of speak about that and share your experience. And I, I really appreciate that. And I think everyone listening is going to love that and oh. really feel inspired. So that was great. Thank you, Phoebe. Yeah, this is like one of the, or just the best podcast being on here, period, in my life, because I'm starting to open up about who I am and talk mm -hmm. about therapy. And this is all leading to my next comedy hour and album, whatever I make. And I just definitely want to talk about those untalked hurts that we have in, mm -hmm. through ourselves and the world. So thank you for always being the bridge to, uh, to your platform. I always appreciate it. Love you. You know that. Oh, I love you too. Oh, this is yeah. such a sweet episode. Yeah, great. <laughs> and I love your your green uh the green wrap. That's so pretty. I love you it. Know, Kill it. Love it's for it. those days where I don't feel like doing my hair. <laughs> 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 okay, that was so good and I don't even want to like belabor it any longer. So let's get to conversation part two with Your French has gotten so much better. We oui. <laughs> Here is Phoebe's conversation with Rachel Cargill. Hi, Rachel. <laughs> you know, I'm so excited you're doing Black Frasier. I think that this will be a really important um, episode because I think the state of the world and leading up to the election, there's just a lot of, I think everyone is just sort of feeling a little bit down. Everyone's really in their heads. Everyone's mm -hmm. feeling really upset and sort of confused as to what is going on. There's all this unrest. And so I really wanted to have an episode dedicated to mental wellness, mental health, and sort of how, especially people of color, BIPOC people can sort of move through the world during its current state. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was thinking about this, I was like, you were the number one person. I was like, I have to talk to Rachel. Oh. Like, she's just like so amazing. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we get into that, I wanted to sort of like kind of like have the audience get to know a little bit about you first and sort of like what mm -hmm. attracted you to the the position that you're in now and like you being an educator and sort of the the burden that that also carries as well. Um, so if you could sort of like mm -hmm. take us back to like what the Rachel, like Batman Begins origin story is of <laughs> who you are, I think that could be really illuminating. Yeah, I think that um, I kind of got thrown into doing this work. Nothing mm -hmm. in me woke up one day and was like, I'm going to have a million white women follow me and I'm going <laughs> to teach them things about race and I'm just going to like exist in this world. Nothing about how I grew up kind of made me want to exist in this space, but a lot of the gifts and the tools that I've learned in life and kind of just the normal things that I'm good at, like writing and speaking, things that came natural to me, put me in a perfect place to be able to be a part of this conversation. And so when I saw the opportunity come and when it was clear that people were interested in hearing my particular voice on these subjects, um, it's a place that I kind of just stepped into and I said, okay, I'm willing to do this since it seems to be what the ancestors are placing in my path right now. So I'm going to go forward between um, the time and place and what skills I have um, this and the passion and the understanding that I have and understand as a black woman, my own experiences mm -hmm. with racism, seeing it, experiencing it personally. And then also as I was learning more about the feminist movement and recognizing there was so much racism seeped in the feminist movement um, and knowing who my followers were, I grew up in a predominantly white space. A lot of my followers were white anyways, because mm -hmm. of um, just my 
lifetime of meeting people and the friendships I had and the professional connections that I had. And so there just was a very clear synchronicity between um, how I could show up and what was happening in the world right now. And so I kind of stepped into it and it's been, it's proven to be a place that um, I feel like I'm able to do really meaningful work. Mm -hmm. um, And it comes to me with a ease, I would say that it's clear other people, you know, people are saying like, oh, Rachel, I would never have the patience or Rachel, I would never be able to say it like that. Um, And it, it made it very clear that this is a space that I was supposed to be in. So I often say race, anti-racism work in particular, there's so many people before um, us who have done it and the fight continues. It's just my turn. So I'm just stepping in and now's my turn. Oh, yeah, that's great. And so I'm curious because I also, you know, I went to a predominantly white high school. We're both from Ohio. I mm-hmm. believe you're from Akron mm-hmm. and I'm Cleveland. Yes. Um, so you're the yes. true home of LeBron James. And I always like try to claim the it. The true but... <laughs> home. <laughs> you're like, back off. He's mine. <laughs> but I'm wondering as like maybe, you know, in middle school or high school, sort of like if you had like any specific experiences that you were sort of processing through like, oh, was that racist? Was that like sort of denying me uh, my womanhood or that sort of like informed where you are now? Like, were you starting to sort of like think about these things that you're discussing now when you were younger and you were a teenager? Well, I honestly definitely didn't think about them when I was younger and when I was Mm. a teenager. It just didn't, I think I was just so seeped in what was happening that I didn't question it. So, you know, the little white girls playing in my hair or asking me would, you know, what would my skin look like if I stayed in the sun a little longer? Like, would I get lighter since they got darker? These types of conversations that were a very clear indication of the racial, the racial situation that I was in being the only black girl in so many spaces. But what I will say has led to me being vocal in the ways that I am. I grew up with a mom who has a disability. She has polio and she's walked on crutches since she was five years old. She had me when she was 40. So she's had them my whole life. And my mom was always very vocal about what her needs were and what her demands were in order for things to be accessible for her. So one of the stories that I tell often is the ways that my mom, um, I played soccer very competitively growing up. And when it would rain, we would have early morning soccer games and it would, the ground would be wet and my mom's crutches would get stuck in the mud and she couldn't make it to the side of the field to watch me play. And oftentimes she would have to sit in the car and just not be able, she would have to watch the game from the parking lot. And she just hated the idea of her not being able to watch her child play a sport like all the other parents were. And so she literally demanded the city build a sidewalk from the parking lot to the field so that it would be accessible. And she made a petition. I'm pretty sure she just typed it up on our computer. There was nothing fancy about it. But she made a petition, had a bunch of parents sign it, and the city did it. The city put in a sidewalk from the parking lot to the soccer field so that people with disabilities could also watch um, their kids play. And so I had often examples of how to advocate for myself and how to demand against injustice. Um, And it took a while for me to get the lens to constantly see these injustices that were happening based specifically on my race or based on my womanhood. Um, But once I did start seeing them and once I did dig into the scholarship, I was already equipped with the confidence and the belief that I deserved to be heard and I deserved and had the opportunity to make change. That's incredible. And yeah, kudos to your mom, because I think a lot of times people, we can all sort of feel like, well, I'm just one person. No one's going to listen to me. So mm-hmm. I might not even try. And the fact that she just said, fuck it, I'm going to go for what's right, I think is so impactful. And it really 
clearly shows that you taken that lesson and carried it through um, throughout your life. And so now looking at you as an educator, especially during this time, like I, you know, I think we met a year and a half, two years ago. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was already like reading your work online and then just seeing the way in particular people will just sort of like kind of show their asses a little bit in your comment section. I always am thinking like the burden that that is and like how draining it is to have to even even if you know someone is being ignorant and it it really isn't going to be any sort of information that you're going to absorb. The fact that you have to read these sort of like kind of boneheaded comments day in, day out is is that taxing on you? Do, does that ever feel like it makes you not want to continue to engage in this work? Like, how are you able to sort of withstand that mentally and make sure that you're in a place where you're taking care of yourself first um, before you start taking care of others? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that you already mentioned is really making sure that I'm in the right headspace to exist mm-hmm. in this very weathering terrain. So doing anti-racism work in the way that I particularly do it, which I describe it as white facing. My work is very white facing, but ultimately for the black community. So I do my work for a um, followership of people that is a majority white women. And my work right now is to be in engaging education with them so that Mm -hmm. when they are in the presence of other black people, they have more of an awareness of the role they play in what that black person is experiencing based on the racism that is within all parts of American life. And there's some people who do work in different ways. There's some people who are healers and work directly with black women and heal them in this space um, as regards to racism. There's some people who, you know, they're hosting really educational events to be able to get people to have an understanding of historical things. And so I just see it as my role, me doing it in this particular way. It is taxing. um, But the way, the other way that I often describe it is, is when I imagine a fourth grade teacher and I couldn't for the life of me, fathom how someone would want to sit in a classroom with that many children all day for like an yeah. extended period of time and pretend like they're enjoying it. Like that blows my mind. But that's because that's my that's not my skill and that's not my lane. But for a fourth grade teacher, that's what they do. And they get excited to be equipped to be able to go out and do this work. And so this is my work. And I understand that for other people, it could and probably should be strenuous because that's just not a way they exist. They do their work in other ways. Um, And this is just the way I do my work. And you're right. People are in my comment section bonkers, like the wildest (laughs) stuff they are often saying to me, to my other followers, just in the space in general. And um, I just am super grateful for, um, you know, my ability to kind of be succinct in my language to get what I have to say out and kind of have it done with so they can, you know, marinate on whatever it is that was said and learn whatever they need to learn. But um, I, I have found, I've, I've been strategic about how I engage online, you know, mm-hmm. like, I'm hip now to who actually wants to learn, and who's just trying to get attention on my page, or um, whether even if I do see someone where someone's not trying to learn, I can see and say, okay, this conversation is very clearly going to be a teaching opportunity. So I'm just going to let it play out, take screenshots and teach from it in a few weeks. And so um, I, before I came into this kind of just showing up as a feminist, as a black woman, as an anti-racist, and I really do teach as I learn. I'm not an Mm. expert in this. The only expertise I have is being a Black woman, which is absolutely expertise when it comes to anti-racism work. But in other ways, I'm not really an expert to where 
Um, I, you know, have a DEI company or I've done equity work in another way. I was just teaching as I learned online and people seem to want to learn with me. And I have used a lot of my skills to guide people into more meaningful learning. But um, I think the exhaustion's definitely there, but, uh, but in contrast, it is my work. So I wake up and I show up for it as much as I can, as often as possible. Yeah. And so I have a couple of things that I want to follow up on because you said a lot that was very juicy. So the first thing being about that your work is white facing. And I Mm -hmm. think that that is important because I think a lot of white people need to have these frank conversations and really need to understand how pervasive um, racism is in America. And so I'm wondering what specifically um, sort of connected with you where you're like, my focus is going to be for white face and to sort of get white people on the bus that we're already on? Yeah, well, it just happened to be where I was situated at the time mm-hmm. when I started this work. So I kind of got launched into it when a photo of me from the Women's March went viral. And the Women's March was centered on feminism. The conversation was feminism. And Um, I got a lot of positive reaction from white people who were following me, which there were a good amount following me anyways, because like I said, it was my friends and my Mm -hmm. colleagues and X, Y, Z. And so it was a lot of white women who um, agreed with the photo that went viral, agreed with the, there was a message on the sign that I was holding up in the photo that said, if you don't fight for all women, you fight for no women. And so um, I noticed that, you know, I was getting all this praise from white women and then Afropunk reposted it a few weeks later. And I got a lot of criticism from the black community. And it was people saying like, why would you be associated with feminism? There was my friend Dana, who's a white woman who was standing next to me. And they're like, why do you trust this white woman? Why would you be a part of this movement? And it made me question everything. It made mm. me say like, what is this intersection of my race and my womanhood? What do I need to understand about feminism? And so I started doing all of my own research. I started studying. I started watching lectures. I started reading books. I started asking questions. And that's when I started talking about it online to my mostly white feminist friends who I was saying like, hey, I'm in this feminist thing with you, but here's some things that we need to unpack because if we don't, I will not feel safe in this movement and I will hold you accountable. And so that's kind of how this white facing work started is because I was existing in a very white feminist world. Mm -hmm. And then as I began to do my own unpacking, my own unlearning, I realized that I was learning all of these things that I felt obligated to make my white friends aware of, um, hyper aware of, and to be held accountable for. And so then um, people valued my teaching style or people valued the way that I was sharing what I was learning. I was, you know, existing in social media. So I was making graphics and I was doing all of these things so that I could, initially, I think I was trying to promote a feminism that was inclusive inclusive mm-hmm. of me because I still deeply believed in the feminist movement, but I knew that there was no way me and my Black friends and my Black followers and my Black comrades and family would feel safe in a feminism that was existing in the way that it was existing. So I started teaching as I learned, and then I built this community who continues to do so. Yeah. And I love the 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 idea of teaching as you learn, because I think a lot of times people want to feel as though either you know everything or you know nothing. And mm-hmm. if you don't know mm-hmm. everything, then you can't talk and you don't have any ideas that are worth um, sharing with other people. Mm-hmm. And so I think the 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 admission that like, I don't know everything and I'm going to educate myself as I'm educating you is very powerful. And I feel like it's something that's kind of being lost in the conversations that are happening around race, mm-hmm. and interse- intersectionality and feminism is that people 
I think A, are afraid to make mistakes. B, they're, some folks can feel like, okay, well, I'm going to kind of dunk on you because I know more than you. And that can sort of get in the way of progress actually being made. So I'm wondering how you're able to sort of navigate through this and have conversations with people and be an educator when there's so many things are getting in the way of people actually receiving the information and learning and doing better. It is very hard. Mm -hmm. Social media is fucking terrifying. Like it's so terrifying in the sense that if you're not perfect, you're going to be canceled. If you make a Mm -hmm. mistake, if you made a mistake seven years ago, someone's going to do the work to dig it up and bring it to light so that they can expose you for who you were seven years ago. There's a million ways that social media is the absolute worst, but it also is the best (laughs) in the way that we're able to build these communities and we're able to learn and we're able to meet others who exist in the world the way we do. Um, I think the way that I combat that is that I am incredibly vulnerable on my social media. Mm -hmm. I have never once proclaimed to be an expert. I have never felt like I needed the social capital of being an expert in order to feel like my work was meaningful. Um, And I think that in the way that I share other parts of me on my social media, I talk about my breakups. I talk about my depression. um, I talk about you know, hard times within the movement. I talk about how I need to rest and take a break and y'all won't hear from me for a few weeks. I talk about how I deserve to take a flashy vacation and that my role as an activist doesn't mean underpaid and overwhelmed Mm -hmm. and not able to live an exceptional life as well. And so I think that uh, the way that I'm pushing up against this culture of um, social capital and the way that we feel like we get it when we're considered the expert or when we um, are not questioned, I don't feel like that's a space that I want to exist in. And so by curating my own world, one with softness, one with vulnerability, one with the recognition that I am not the expert and that you're just learning along with me. Um, And I bring in the experts. So with my online learning platform, The Great Unlearn, I curate syllabus, but I bring in people who are in academic spaces to come and teach. And they often don't get access to um, public platforms as big as mine might be. And so I'm excited to make those connections with the actual experts, the people I'm learning from. And so I'm trying to be continuously vulnerable and letting people recognize that I have no desire for you to expect me to be perfect or expect Mm -hmm. me to know everything or get anything wrong. Um, And I often share when I am called out, when it happens online, especially by Black women, when I'm having these conversations. Um, Recently, um, Tarana Burke called me out on something that I had Mm -hmm. mentioned her movement, the Me Too movement in a post. And she's like, oh, Rachel, you're using that all wrong and you can't make that comparison. So I Mm -hmm. went in and I changed it and I actually screenshot the conversation between Tarana and I Um, And I showed it and said, here I am being called out. Here's how I fixed it. And this is how I plan to move forward. Just to give that reminder that my social media community in particular isn't positioned to be the end all be all. I love the fact that people can use my platform as a launching pad to deeper study, as a toolbox for how they interact. But never do I have any desire or expectation for the social capital of being an expert within this space. Yeah. And you mentioned about, you know, sort of the idea that people or what they think an activist is. And I think a lot of times people think activism equals suffering, right? Or being submerged within the trauma. Mm -hmm. And that is your work. That is your entire identity. So I'm wondering, like, sort of during this journey of you being an activist and educating others, what sort of things did you have to unlearn 
about what it means to be an activist in order to protect yourself, not only mentally, but emotionally? Yeah, I realized very quickly that if I was to ever present myself as an activist, that was all I could do. And I had Mm -hmm. to do it under tears and suffering. And that Mm -hmm. if I wasn't always do, if I wasn't always crying or mad or angry, then they would believe like, oh, Rachel's not doing the the work anymore. Rachel's Mm -hmm. not out there. I actually just had someone comment on a post just a few days ago. And she said, Rachel, you seem so soft right now. Like what Mm -hmm. happened to the more you know, aggressive you. And I was like, well, one, this isn't a performance where I have to maintain Mm -hmm. some type of performance for you to stay entertained by what I'm doing in the world. But also, isn't the point for us to get to a space of rest? Isn't the point for us to get to a space of ease? Isn't the point for me to feel like I can finally take a break because there's so many more people who are out fighting the fight? And um, that's how it should be for me and any other educator and any other individual person who's been doing this work and who is allowed to take a break and is allowed to rest. And so um, I come up against that daily, whether it's from the black community who's like, Rachel, where, where are you at right now? And I'm like, I can't, I just can't show up right now. Or the white people or non-black people who are like, um, you need to tell me this and this and this if you want me to show up. And it's like, okay, uh-huh. I need to start curating what I want my existence in this work to look like. And so for my own mental um, and emotional health, I recognized that that was not a way that I wanted to present myself. And so I started to build other structures around me that would support me in doing this meaningful work, but not put me in a space of, um, I don't even know what the word is, like just a space of continuously being um, face down in this struggle Mm -hmm. that I can do meaningful work and live my life. And so I have tried to use my creative spirit and my entrepreneurial spirit to be able to exist in this work with longevity and with continued meeting. So things like opening up my bookstore and things like starting the great unlearn and things like a lot of the meaningful partnerships that I do that allow me to have the income to stay comfortable and stay um, precise in how I'm doing this work and not have to drown in, in the process. And that's also the heart work of me as a black woman Believing I deserve it. Yeah. Oh, believing that you deserve it. So many people just don't think that way. And that, yeah, that plays a really huge role in it. And so I want to also talk about your foundation. You have the Loveland Foundation. Um, So if you could talk a little bit about that, because I think that's really important right now, especially for BIPOC people to sort of feel like they have a place that they can go and sort of like work on themselves, like, like just take off like the sort of stress of everyday life and the social uprisings and really find a safe space where they can be and exist and not have to explain themselves. Mm -hmm. I have so many people of color who message me and say, Rachel, what is my role in this fight? You seem Mm -hmm. to be doing X, Y, Z, and I want to exist the way that you're existing in the movement, but I don't feel like that's my calling or I can't figure it out or I'm sick or I'm tired or whatever the reason is. And they feel less than for not showing up Mm. in the more front facing ways that me or other uh, more public activists are. And I always have to remind black women in particularly, and also black people in general, and then looking at people in color as a whole, that we are not the ones who have to fix this problem. And you existing as a black woman is 
the revolution. It is the resistance because as we see, they're trying to kill us as often as possible and as many in as many ways as possible. They're either trying to completely strip us of our livelihood or quite literally kill us. And so I say staying black and alive is the resistance. Staying black and having joy is the resistance. Staying black and finding rest is the resistance. And so it's imperative for me to make it clear that this is my life's work. This is mm-hmm. my um this is my living. This is how I make my living by doing this work. And so I am getting paid by these organizations to go in and teach. I am demanding um, the people who follow me and who learn from me to honor my work by donating to me. And that happens often. I am getting paid to write my book. I'm getting paid to do X, Y, Z. So this is my um, livelihood. This is how I, this is how I make my living. And so for people who this isn't the way that they're literally making a living and they have committed to doing this work, their only job is, is to stay alive and to stay well. And if there's other things that they want to do based on their skills or what they feel called to do, then go ahead. But I don't think, I strongly believe that no black woman should ever feel like she's not doing enough in the fight because her staying alive and well is the resistance in itself. And so to ask you sort of like, how are you holding up during this sort of like social unrest that's been going on for weeks and months? And, you know, we have the election coming up and that for sure is going to be a circus. And so I'm wondering like mentally, how are you able to sort of like not be bummed out every day or sort of overwhelmed by how the country is just so upside down right now. Yeah, it's exhausting. All of us are exhausted in a million ways and black people in, in particular are exhausted, heartbroken, overwhelmed. There's a million things that are happening that are weighing on me and every other person in this country, every other black person, every other black woman in particular in the country. And Um, I've definitely been taking a break from social media. I've Mm -hmm. kind of uh, laid back a little bit because I have so much work out there. It's so funny. I've been doing this work for many, many years now. And for the last little while, I've just been reposting things that I said two years ago because Mm -hmm. they're still relevant and they're particularly relevant to everyone's understanding of the social unrest that's happening right now. And so I've just been trying to be intentional on pulling from prior work and um, re-offering it to my community so that they can still learn from work that I've done and not really pushing myself to um, educate from a space of novelty because there really isn't much novelty in race work because we've been doing it for so long. But just finding ways for me to do this work in the most useful but impactful way possible. Um, And also just surrounding myself with the Black women who continue to fortify me and fortify me in ways that um, push me in, you know, you know how it is, like writing a book or doing press or um, doing smaller projects here and there who are reminding me, you know, what this work is for and how we're showing up, Um, but also being committed to the ease and rest that I, again, believe that I deserve, that we all Mm -hmm. deserve um, by doing things that I know nourish me. I usually have highest values each year. I decide what my highest values are. And Mm -hmm. just a few months ago, I decided that nourishment is going to be one of my highest values for the foreseeable future, because I feel like when we're doing this particular work, we get so parched and we get so weathered and it feels like we won't be revived again until something happens. And so I have decided that that something will be nourishment of myself. Aside from self-care, what are the ways that I can put into myself, pour into myself in ways that will 
fill me now and maintain me later. And so um, I've just been really focused on that type of like intensive self-awareness and that intensive self-introspection about what I need and then communicating that to my community and saying, hey, whether it's my business team, my best friend, my partner and saying, hey, here's what my priorities are in order for me to stay well. And I'll need you to use this as a lens through which you interact with me going forward. And me just being intentional and communicating um, has been super helpful helpful as well as watching like movies from the 80s and eating ice cream and <laughs> laying on my couch. <laughs> what movies from the 80s have you been watching? <laughs> I I am so ashamed to say that I watched Dirty Dancing for the first time last week. <gasps> it's so it good. Changed my life. It changed my life. <laughs> I'm a new person now. I am the post I've watched Dirty Dancing. So if you see me grinding in a corner somewhere in Brooklyn, you know why. It is also wild because she's like 16, her character. And he's clearly like 25. And that, and at the end, the dad is like, you, you, go, you go fuck my 16-year-old daughter. It's like, what? What? What blows my mind is the dancing in the hall, like the dirty dancing that was happening. And they talk about our generation. They were having sexual intercourse on that floor. <laughs> and I'm like, don't ever talk to me about twerking again in my life because y'all were doing a whole other thing that I was part of, but it was a whole other thing. Yeah, that that was wild. Um <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about mental health and wellness for a bit, because I feel like there's so many conversations around the topic. And I think there are different standards for different people, certainly when it comes mm. to race, certainly when it comes to gender. And I don't want to make this like a Kanye West sort of thing, because that's not what this conversation is. But I do think mm. that a lot of times people use sort of, someone going through a mental health issue as a form of entertaining and like just sort of watching that and being like, Oh, like what's the drama here? Like, can I, let's get clicks, let's do this. And not really taking, like not really understanding that this is actually a person sort of dealing with trauma. And so I'm wondering, especially like what that feels like for you to sort of witness that and see how people are like, not really taking mental wellness and mental illness seriously but then it's also sort of like I think when it comes to men they are given they have a a wider range to to sort of fuck up like I think that if a black woman was sort of having the similar kind of um issues publicly I don't think that it would be like we really need to just like like be sensitive, like give her a chance. Mm. Like we don't understand. She's a genius. Like that label of she's a genius. Yeah. That label of genius in the yeah. midst of something like that. Yeah. I agree. I, it is wild. It's all, mm. it's wild the way social media plays a role in what we understand as norm and stigma. Mm. Um, because I think that in particular social media is both going against the stigma that social, that, uh, mental health is something that is taboo. Mental health care is something that is like rock bottom last resort. Mm. Um, so there's this double-sided coin of social media being a space that we can get the word out to be in conversation, but also in these entertainment spaces where they'd rather take it for entertainment value as opposed to considering what societal, 
um, aspects are being played into with a particular situation. And I, I, I can't really speak to that in particular, but I, mm-hmm. what I will say in regards to the Loveland Foundation and my decision to focus on providing um, therapy sessions to Black mm-hmm. women and girls is because in so many ways, Black women and girls are the foundation for communities at large, but particularly mm-hmm. Black communities. If we look at um, you know, the traditional roles of a mother of the church or the matriarch of the family, um, looking at who's even traditionally, who was making the medicine, who was doing all of these aspects. And I decided that for me to make the most impact possible, I would pour my efforts into supporting Black women and girls because it would be a ripple effect from them. When a mother is more mentally stable and she has that comfortability of feeling like she's taken care of, it'll pour into how she cares for her son, how she exists with her partner, how she shows up for her community organization. And so I think that we have to consider all aspects Mm -hmm. of how mental health plays into it and doing our own individual part to to get rid of that stigma. And also... I often teach that we need to consider mental health not as a rock bottom solution, but as a maintenance. It's not something Mm -hmm. that we need when something has gone wrong. It's something that we engage in in order to maintain ourselves um, because things are going to go wrong regardless. But mental health care continues to offer us tools to deal with these hardships throughout life. And some people just don't have access to the possibility of it. There's so many, you're from Ohio and we, and we both live in New York now. Mm -hmm. There is so much that if I never left Ohio, I would never interact with if I hadn't moved to New York city. And so in a lot of ways, mental health care shows up like that. Like if you are not in a space where mental health is discussed in a casual way, Mm -hmm. you won't take it seriously or you'll see it as something wrong. And so maintaining those conversations with ourselves, with our friends, I always say me and my girlfriends go to brunch. Like, how was your therapy session, girl? Like, tell me what you talked about. (laughs) How did your therapist have you feeling? Like it's, it's a very normal part of our lives. And we expect, I mean, I don't even date someone like I'm like, so tell me about your therapist. And if they're like, if they have any negative feelings about therapy, I'm going to question whether I want to exist with them or not, because mm-hmm. that's what I, I need that for the people in my world to maintain mm-hmm. themselves as well. So we all can shop for each other. Um, but it it's, it's scary to consider the ways that we might use social media in the best way possible to continue to push this conversation and continue to support each other or in the ways that you said we're seeing where um, we'd rather put it in a space of entertainment mm-hmm. um, for the entertainment of many instead of really focusing on how this applies to us as individuals and our communities. Yeah, and I'm wondering in terms of like why people are so resistant to A, to get rid of the stigma and not just understand that mental wellness should be a part of everyone's mm-hmm. life. It should be a part of society. And it, overall, people would be happier or they would they would struggle less if this was more readily available and less mm-hmm. sort of stigmatized. And why do you think like we're still sort of trying to get over that hump of normalizing mental health as a priority? I don't know. I just think it's, there's a lot of ego involved, like what mm-hmm. people feel they need and don't need and how that uh, what that reflects about them, the feeling like, you know, if I need mental health care, then that means that there's something wrong with me that's not fixable and I'm not worthy or I'm not normal. Um, and so I think that it ends up being, I don't, I just keep thinking ego, like the idea that if I have to do this, there's something wrong with me and that makes it not worth it for me. Um, and 
the more that we engage in that conversation, the more we're able to normalize it. Cause there's also the religious aspect of people saying, mm-hmm. Oh, you don't need it. If you need it, you need to trust in your religion or trust in your deity. And that will be the thing that will support you. Or even, I, I think a lot about um, like postpartum depression and mm-hmm. saying like, they don't understand that it is a mental health, like a chemical imbalance. And it has nothing to do with how you relate to your child. And it has nothing to do with how you show up as a mother. And so it's a lot of education and a lot of conversation to help normalize and offer, um, offer normalcy to what mental wellness could be. Yeah. And so how do you feel like you're, you relate to your mental health now, knowing what you know, as opposed to years ago, where maybe you weren't as sort of knowledgeable about it? You know what? Interestingly, I, the first time I had ever encountered therapy, I was 11. Um, My father Mm. had passed away and my mom put me in a group therapy and I loved it. I was like, Mm. thank you for telling me your story. Thank you everyone for listening. I thought my therapist offered the best tools for trying to figure it out. I personally never had any type of feeling about Mm. mental Mm. health or therapy. I I just remember being 11 and really enjoying the experience of going to therapy and the idea that someone outside of my family could give me insight into what was happening and give me tools for how to deal with it. And so I think I kind of had a bit of surprise when I saw, because my friends would be going through something, I'd be like, oh, have you ever tried group therapy? Because it was very normal for me at the time. And every that's when I started to realize that it had this stigma. And the thing that bothered me most about mental health is the lack of access to it, Mm -hmm. the wild price costs of it. Um, as As I got into college and my friends started to study psychology and they started working towards their PhDs, I saw how incredibly hard it was for Black women to get through these programs and to be successful in it. And so while I didn't have the stigma in my mind, I was very aware of the barriers that were happening in mental health care. And so that was one of the biggest parts of me wanting to start the Loveland Foundation. There's so many wonderful organizations that um, are gearing their work towards breaking the stigma. And um, I hope that Loveland's brick in the wall of changing all of this will be supporting the community and getting access. Oh, that's so amazing. Um, I th- Sorry, did you hear that motorcycle? <laughs> I was like, what's happening outside? Sorry about that. Uh, but no, that's really amazing. And so I want to like move on to my favorite part of the show is audience questions. People have oh. really excited to sort of like, kind of like oh. get some advice on stuff. And like, I think it'll be cool. great for us to sort of talk about it. Um, so we have five questions. Um, and okay, so the first one is from Monica. She is from the Bay Area. (laughs) Hey, Monica. She's from the Bay Area (laughs) in California. Um, And so she she writes, how can we encourage more of the men in our BIPOC community to go to therapy before they marry and or have kids? My mom is white and my dad is a nice BIPOC mix product of U.S. and U.K. colonialism. (laughs) Um, My mom made sure my dad went to therapy early in their marriage, pre-me, and he still does some check-ins about four to five times a year. It's so healthy for all of us as a family unit since my dad experienced a lot of trauma and crap as a kid. I have not been able to convince my husband to do the same. And I'm holding back having kids until he does. Last mm-hmm. night, he told me that seeing a therapist was an insult to his manhood. Ooh. Um, he, has two Ivy League, he has two Ivy League degrees, by the way. Can we make going to therapy and dealing with your shit sexy? 
That's really, I think it is. That that is so much. And Mm -hmm. I think it's so cool to hear about how her family as a whole is approaching Mm -hmm. therapy. I love that idea. And I love this question kind of introducing how we can uh, ease into therapy. So he just goes, I go to therapy once a week. She Mm -hmm. said that he goes to therapy five or six times a year. I love that people are kind of showing up in a way that they know they need to and they can make adjustments as necessary. Um, But to answer that question about looking and making it look sexy, I think that it is in so many ways. She kind of explained how her mother made that expectation before their marriage and how she finds so much joy and pride in it being part of her family. And I think that one of the good things that uh, Monica mentioned is like the consequences. Like I'm not having children with you until you make this commitment to show up. So continuing to hold those consequences in the same way that I would assume someone would say, you know, you haven't worked in the last seven years. And that concerns me about how well we're going to be able to exist together, seeing that we'll have to pay rent. So in having that same type of expectation to say, hey, um, I need you to commit to your own well-being so that we can have a collective wellness because that is my expectation for how I'm going to live my life. And um, so setting those like hard boundaries about what we expect from our partners, but also saying, you know, maybe three times a year we do couples therapy Mm -hmm. so that we can really figure out how we can show up for each other in a more intimate and a more in-depth way. Um, I don't know how sexy it is in terms of the word sexy, (laughs) (laughs) but I think that it can be intimate. I think that it could be an intimate part of your relationship and it would, and I think that sex is always better when you have that deep connection Mm -hmm. with someone. So yeah, maybe it is sexy that when you are showing up for each other and listening and finding new tools to make your relationship work, it could turn into a hot session after your therapy meeting. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm also wondering, so like, what if he really truly is like, I like will not go to therapy is that like a deal breaker? Like, is it okay oh, to a, be to Monica? Yeah. I think that's a decision. I think for me, it would be for me, mm-hmm, it would be because mm-hmm. we, if, if she wants to make it as serious in her relationship as she's relaying it, then she has to make it as serious in her relationship as she's relaying it. And yeah. for her to have these expectations based on her um, family and her understanding of the, the impact of it, then it will be as serious as she makes it. And it sounds like it's serious to her. So it might be a deal breaker to say, if you're not willing to care for yourself, because we think about it in any other ways. If, if you are dating someone who is very clearly going to die in the next, however many years, because of the way they're physically taking care of themselves, Mm -hmm. um, then you would make that hard choice. Like this isn't good for you or me. So I'm going to take myself out of the situation. Um, We have to consider what it might look like in in the way of mental health so just keep it as serious as she says it is yeah and i think also like you know him saying that him seeing a therapist would be an insult to his manhood i think sort of speaks to what you're talking about earlier and the ego and sort of like i think Mm -hmm. if he could just be willing to put the way that he sees himself aside oh for sure and sort of understand okay this is something that my partner wants to explore and i think that could be a great benefit with for him i think to understand himself better, you know? And, and even I, maybe Monica, you can suggest to him that this isn't, um, an approach to dealing with his problems. It Mm. could be an approach to processing good things. 
So, yeah. so if it's like, hey, your career has been going really well. We're thinking about starting a family. I'm also making, you know, X, Y, Z is happening with me. Let's go to a therapist to help talk out how this is playing in our heads. So everything mm-hmm. will play out well in our lives. And so it doesn't have to be like, let's go deal with your depression and figure out what what happened in your family when you were six. It could be, hey, let's figure out how we can show up now in the best way possible. And maybe later um, he would be introduced into some of the more back work that there comes with therapy, but it doesn't have to be a negative approach. It could be, mm-hmm. let's make this a maintenance part of our life moving forward and not a reflection of who we are right now. Yeah. And I think that might be one of the reasons why so many people are so hesitant about therapy because they think like, oh, if I go to therapy, we're saying that like, I'm a garbage person, I'm broken, I'm terrible, mm-hmm. I'm wrong, mm-hmm. and I need to be fixed. And I think if people could sort of recontextualize that therapy, like you said before, is about maintenance and that if to be alive and be in this world means that you need to have some tune-ups from time to time for your mental health. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Um, okay, so our next um, question is from Lindsay. She's in Seattle, Washington. She writes... Me and my boyf are that's boyfriend. <laughs> me and my boyf. <laughs> me and my boyf are fun- Yeah. <laughs> me and my boyf are functioning members of society. We go to work, we go outside, we have friends and shit. But we probably spend a quarter of our time stoned every morning and weekend. We each consider ourselves healthy people who use weed to diffuse our exan- our anxiety and boost our moods. Just like I used to take Zoloft every day for four years. But should we embrace sobriety more? I can admit it's a drug dependency, but is it really all that bad if it's helping us regulate and be happy? Ooh. I am in no way qualified to even answer that question. Yeah. But I would say that if we consider therapy and we consider the conversations that one could have with their therapist about if it is indeed a dependency, or if you Mm -hmm. have found a healthy routine to help you get through your days, that is another reason why therapy would be a valuable part of your um, personal maintenance, because Mm -hmm. you can evaluate how the ways you're uh, dealing with life in general, whether it's like, oh, I'm sleeping too much, or I've spent too much money traveling because I'm always trying to escape something, or I'm getting into this relationship that looks good, but doesn't feel right. Is this just me pacifying myself? And all of those are in the same vein of this question that Lindsay asked, that it's very, her self-awareness is wonderful Mm -hmm. to say, hey, this is what's happening, how it's happening how it's affecting me. And I need to consider how that plays into my life. Um, I think that her, their willingness to say, Hey, this is what's happening. And this is my understanding is such a promising recognition for how they can figure that out with either their doctor um, or in particular, a therapist who can work not just with how it's affecting her body, which is very Mm -hmm. clear, but also how it affects every the intersection of every other part of her life this relationship her work she said she's functioning and all these Mm -hmm. things is she functioning maybe she should talk to a therapist to see if there's a few things that aren't going as well as they could be um i'm definitely not qualified to answer the depths of that but i think that as we're on the theme of therapy this is a perfect example of you're not broken you're doing Mm -hmm. well you're a functioning adult you're in a relationship now let's go to a therapist to kind of clear the cobwebs around getting some clarity into how this is actually playing into your life. I mean, you could be a therapist. I'm just saying. <laughs> I think you should just There's go so for much it. School, I refuse. So much school. <laughs> what do you 
you mean? You're a teacher. You're an educator. You love school. <laughs> it's so strong. Like those tests, I can't. I can't. My soul. I have to go to therapy for the anxiety around all that. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. Oh, this is a good one. Okay. So this is from Roxanne in El Paso, Texas. Um. What have you done to keep yourself going and accomplish goals when you feel like you've been running on fumes? Oof. I think this will relate to so many people. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm a 25-year-old PLC studying engineering, but just returned back to school after a hiatus of four-ish years due to depression. I lost mm-hmm. my full-ride scholarship when I had to leave. I've worked really hard to come back and be where I am. However, I feel like I've just had to be at 150% just to get back at the starting line. And I'm just running on fumes now for the rest of this figurative marathon. Ooh, yeah. I feel that so much. Mm -hmm. And you're right, especially as a person of color, we have, Mm -hmm. it feels like we have to do 800 million additional things just to get the bare minimum. And And I feel that way sometimes as well. Like, damn, like I did all of this and I'm yeah. in a space where I'm still questioning myself. I'm still being questioned by other people, whatever the things mm-hmm. that come up against us um, in those moments. And I think to answer a question, what I do in, in that space, one of the things that I have found is most relevant and helpful to me is routines. In this mm-hmm. world, as a person of color, we feel like we're out of control of everything. Like it feels like nothing was made for us. It feels like there's nothing that we control. It feels like, you know, the respectability politics that we have to play in, everything feels exhausting. And I personally have found that routines have allowed me the space to feel both in control and grounded of the way that I'm existing from day to day. So my morning routine is so special and important Mm -hmm. to me. Um, And the things that we bring into our routine. So I often, lately, I I have lots of books and I've been pulling things off my shelf from Black women in the past in history who I I consider them love letters to me. So like a love letter from a Black woman who has existed in this world and who has experienced a lot, often more hardship than I even have um, in order to exist in the world and really um, communing with Black women from across the spectrum, across history, across time and space to yeah. just remember my place in the world, that I'm not the last one. I'm not the first one to go through this. I'm not the last one to go through this. And that there's so much that we can um, pull from and pour into each other that really offers us some groundedness in a world that often feels like a whirlwind at all times. So the, so like I said, a morning routine, an evening routine, and really being intentional with our friendships with other people of color, with other people who reflect us, with other people who um, have intention to nourish us. I always say like, I have this fantasy of me having all of my black girlfriends greasing each other's scalps while we watch black Cinderella with Brandy. Like that just seems like the TV I'm calling you when this happens. Yes, I will be there. I I feel like it's like a particularly nourishing situation to just be existing in this indulgent blackness. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes when our blackness seems to be the thing that's always our barrier, I have to be intentional at celebrating it because in reality, it's not. Um, 
And while I can't say how to change the world, how to change your engineering program, how Mm -hmm. to get a better schedule, I don't know all of those details of the questioner's um, life. I can insist that you create these routines and these traditions and these touch points in your life that help to ground you and remind you of why you're doing it, remind you of things you've done in the past to get you here. I often write about praying to my younger self, praying to Mm -hmm. that person who did all the work to get me to this place. So praying to that person who in your depression was able to get out of it and saying, thank you and saying, I will honor you by moving forward in the way that you have given me a launch pad to do so. Um, these are ways that I personally am able to tap into a little breath of life to continue moving forward. You just have to, it's like maintenance. Again, you have to keep tapping in order to, uh, push forward. Yeah. And I know that, um, Roxanne, she, she lost her full ride scholarship, which I think will only add more anxiety and stress. And I think that's really difficult. And so, I know for me, for college, I was like a resident advisor to help pay for school. I did mm-hmm. work study. Mm-hmm. I found like yep. little tiny. Yeah. Or like you find like a tiny like scholarship that's maybe like six grand, which doesn't feel like that much, but it's a little bit of help. So maybe like sort of looking into those opportunities where you can get like a little bit of money there to help take the financial pressure off, which I think will also help relieve you mentally as well. It's I mean, college also, is just. Yeah. I'll throw out the idea that. um I don't know, Roxanne, but being an engineer and being in college, there's all Mm -hmm. of these very strict, intensive processes, finding a way to be creative, and then Mm -hmm. maybe finding a way to make money off of that creativity will both be an emotional outlet and a way for you to make a little bit more money while you're moving through your program. Yeah. So best of luck to you, Roxanne. I think you got this. Um, Okay. So, um, okay. This is from Anonymous. Um, they write with everything going on in the world, it's mentally taxing to have to show up to work, AKA zooms in my living room and do all this small talk, all this small talk, like Mm -hmm. the world isn't on fire. Totally agree with that. Um, how can we encourage our employers to do more for our mental health during this time, whether it's free therapy or discount on therapy? It just seems like there's a big elephant in the room, especially for Mm -hmm. BIPOC folk where we're supposed to just show up and do our work when non-BIPOC are not drained the way we are when we're constantly reading the news about Mm -hmm. BIPOC people suffering trauma at the hands of white people. Is it too much to ask for our mental wealth to be protected with the help of our employer? Ooh, that's a great question. That is such a good question. And I've gotten that question a lot from Mm -hmm. uh, students also who are who their teachers are expecting them to show up in the same way that they would have six months ago, Mm -hmm. or it probably was six months ago, a year ago, I'll say. Um, And so considering, um, considering that I will first offer the tool that on the, on my platform, the great unlearn, we have made a series of templates for emails that you can use to hold your employer accountable for recognizing and showing up for racial justice, as well Mm -hmm. as the ways that your people of color within your space are existing in the world. Um, We've made one for school districts. We've made one for universities. We've made one for your employer. We've also made one for your religious institution. So um, if you, I don't know if you do links or something, but we can link that and you'd be able Mm -hmm. to, um, or you can go to my page in my link tree in the bio and you can see those resources, which people have um, used and modified in lots of ways that have taken that elephant out the room, as they said, being able to acknowledge that this is happening and have Mm -hmm. expectation of a response. 
that's my first suggestion is starting the conversation um, and saying like, hey, this is what I need, like advocating for yourself. Like we said in the beginning of our talk, this boldness to advocate for yourself and feel like you deserve whatever it is that you're asking for. So when they said, is it too much to have this expectation? No, it's not too much to have the expectation. And I hope that there can continue to be tools to engage in this conversation because it is a very, very hard thing um, to approach. But also if you have any trusted white people in your space to say, hey, I understand that this conversation might be held with more ease if you bring it to the table. Mm -hmm. Here are the things that I'm going through. Can you bring this up? And can you be an ally and show up and say, hey, here's what our Black coworkers or our Black students or our Black community, they're experiencing a particular type of existence right now Mm -hmm. in the midst of both pandemic and protest. And it is our duty to show up for them since they're doing, because oftentimes Black people are showing up Hard. Like we said, working that extra amount to show up in spaces, they're doing so much for our school, for our company, for our organization. What can we do to make sure they are okay to continue to exist with us? Um, so I'm not saying that it's easy, mm-hmm. but it is um, absolutely deserved and possible for you to take that elephant out the room and come up with a list of expectations in order for you to exist well, as I'm sure you have been for that company for so long. Yeah. And this is a question for me. What, what could this person, what's the, oh, anonymous, LOL. Uh, what could <laughs> anonymous do if the employer seems resistant to this? Because I think there are going to be some companies who are going to be like, oh, I didn't even think of that. Thank you so much for bringing this mm-hmm. up. And there are going to be other companies that are going to just sort of feel like this is not, this is not my issue. It's not my concern. I know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know the yeah. answer to that. And I wish I knew the answer to that. Like, I don't know, uh, except for like, you know, exposing them and having and like demanding Mm. accountability. But I also understand that that's not possible for everyone. Some people are like, I will literally die if I lose this job. My children Mm -hmm. will literally not eat if I'm not able to work here anymore. And it's not worth um, rocking the boat or making these demands if it's going to be results in X, Y, Z. And I empathize with that completely. Mm -hmm. And so I say, of course, consider yourself first, consider your safety first, consider your situation. Um, And for a lot of people, that hasn't been the case. I heard stories Mm -hmm. of, I told my, I sent my employer the template and I let them know what I wanted. And they went on and pretended like I never sent the email. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a societal problem. That's what we're all working towards, making demands so that this isn't the case. Um, But doing what you can as much as you can with what you understand about your situation is the best thing I can suggest. Thank you, Rachel. And good luck, Anonymous. Um, So this is the last question. It's from Samantha in Portland, Oregon. Um, How do you avoid getting overwhelmed given the current climate in the world? What do you do for self-care? I don't know if I can avoid it. Yeah. I... <laughs> I've been listening to my body a lot. I, I use, I'm a very early riser. I wake up very early, but lately I've been sleeping in and I have no clue why nothing much has changed um, besides everything that has changed. Yeah. But like nothing, <laughs> nothing intensive has happened in the last, let's say, week or two. And mm-hmm. so I've just been like giving myself the grace to exist however I need to to survive right now. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means sleeping in. Sometimes that means, um, you know, turning my phone off for the whole weekend. It means getting off of social media, muting people who give me anxiety for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. Um, deciding to prioritize my survival 
in this yeah. time. And it does feel so like there's, you know, just the days of waking up and being like, oh yeah, we're in a pandemic. Like yeah. having that moment of remembering what's happening in the world mm-hmm. and then being like, okay, let me breathe for five minutes and just allow myself to ease back into this reality right now. Um, I think that we just have to listen to ourselves, listen to our bodies, listen to how our mental, how we're talking to ourselves in our heads Mm -hmm. and just being gentle. Like we would be, um, if there was another person in your home who was going through the things that you're going through, how caring would you be? How gentle would you be? Would you tell them to go lay down and have something to eat if they need it? Would you tell them to go for a walk? Would you tell Mm -hmm. them to have a sip of water and listen to some calming music? Whatever you would suggest, try doing it for yourself. And it is wild how we often don't offer ourselves what we would offer others in terms of um, compassion and uh, caring. And so just trying to be intentional to say, okay, here's how I'm feeling. This is how it's affecting me. If I was seeing this happen in someone I loved, who's also, who would be in this home, what would I suggest? And then take your suggestions. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Rachel. Those were such great tidbits of advice. And I really hope that everyone listening will like absorb it and try to put it into their lives in whatever way works the best for them. I'm so excited for everything you have going. I know you are in the middle of writing a book right now. Yes, I am. I'm in the middle of writing my first book. Congratulations. (laughs) I can't wait for it to come out. What's the title again? Um, I don't want your love and light. Best title. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't wait to read that. I'm going to pre-order it. I'm so excited for everything that you're doing. And I really, really do feel so grateful that you're waking up and you're doing this work. And it's really, it's having a positive effect and it's making change happen a little bit faster. And that is, we're indebted to you. So thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you so much. I appreciate it a ton. Thank you. Yay, of course. Okay, that episode, Bake Off, so good. There's something that Nori said that really like struck a note with me that therapy should be as important as your food, your water, your your mental health, I should say, not Mm -hmm. therapy alone, should be as important as food, water and air because it's so important. Yep. It was great. I really feel like, you know, it's so wonderful to just be able to be vulnerable and be open. And for people that are listening who may be thinking about you know, trying out therapy in 2021, I think that this is a good primer mm-hmm. for them to understand what they can expect yep. and maybe not be afraid of it. So I'm really honored that I could use whatever platform that I do have to sort of like raise awareness about it. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm really excited about that. I hope you guys love the episode and I hope you guys have a great 2021. Just kidding. I'm not done yet. <laughs> we have breaking news. We have merch. Oh, merch. I love merch. Yes. So here's the deal, you guys. It's almost Christmas. You should have done bought your presents already. If not, we got your backs. Yeah. I will say that these probably will not get to you. Oh, I was making a t-shirt pun. Oh, that was good. I will say at this point, I mean, it's the 22nd. It's on you. Yeah. These might not get to you. That was another t shirt pun. Oh, fucking hell. Oh, look at at this cleavage. Have I always had cleavage? We have t shirts, sizes small to (laughs) triple XL, and uh, lovely jumpers. Go to phoebeRobson.com slash merch. 
and get yourself a bunch of them. We need money. <laughs> that is not true. <laughs> Do not listen to her. <laughs> How am I going to keep buying freaking skincare products? Pharrell's got a lie. Rihanna's got a lie. JLo's got a lie. Alicia Keys got a lie. How? I've got a line. Yeah. What are your products? Basic white guy moisturizer. <laughs> Is there a, a cleanser at all? Or No, nah, we don't need it. So you just put on moisturizer? Mm-hmm. Every four to five days. And your only product is this? It's doing very well. Oh. Well, you can go to basicwhiteguyskincare.com. <laughs> it's not real. Don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you guys. This is the last episode of the C's. You know how we always do black-owned businesses because we're independent as fuck. Wow. We don't need no man. No. We don't need no help. Because I, uh, I'll take a little bit of help. We don't need your opinions. I mean, they're valid opinions and I'd always listen, but. Okay. We are still independent. And so we don't want to sponsor freaking Uno cards. Okay. Is that because there's Uno cards behind me? Yes. Okay. We don't want to sponsor Canon inkjet print. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) They're fine. They're okay. Yeah. (laughs) So what I want to do, so this is the final episode of the season, is I really wanted to just shout out some of my favorite black authors throughout the year. What a great idea. Because I feel like, again, because it's Christmas, almost coming up, you could still rush order a book. Yeah, Amazon. Well, yeah. Not a sponsor at all. Not a sponsor. No, but. Greenlight Books, also not a sponsor. If I would have to choose to get a book last minute before Christmas, there's. That's probably where I would go. Yeah. But also support your indie bookstores. Bake off. I'll try. Okay. So some of my favorite authors this year. Uh, I got to start with Kylie Reed. Such a fun age. I really, 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 really love that book so much. It's delightful. It was a Reese Witherspoon book club selection. Yeah. Um, I also want to shout out Samantha Irby for Wow No Thank You. It ended up on Vanity Fair's Best Books of 2020. Huge. She's phenomenal. She also has two other books out. So, you know. Oh, she's she's busy. Yeah. She she's she's booked and busy. Um, I also want to shout out Michelle Buteau. What what? Who who? <laughs> My dear friend. Um, she just published her essay collection, Survival of the Thickest. You could get that. Um, Mediocre by Ijeoma Oluo, who is a fantastic New York Times bestselling author. Uh, I think it's Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. Yes. Something like that. Very close. Um, I also want to shout out The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. Fantastic Mm. book. I want to shout out Cleo Wade. I love her books. Jericho Brown, his Pulitzer Prize winning poetry collection, The Tradition. I want to, you know, show some love for Austin Chaney Brown. I'm still here. Mm-hmm. Zadie Smith into uh, intimations. Intimate. <laughs> you could never say that word. Intimations. intimations. I don't know why I always stumble over it. Okay. See, um, Jacqueline Woodson's Red at the Bone. 
Alicia Keys' memoir, More Myself, How to Be an Anti-Racist, Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, just all of the things. There's so many phenomenal books and more. Let me go up to my Black author section on my Instagram to shout out some more folks. You know, um, uh, here we go. Uh, Twisted by Emma Dabiri. This is Major by Shayla Lawson. Um, this will be My Undoing by Morgan Jerkins. Um, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America by Marsha Chatlin. I think I said that correctly. Um, um, uh, Get a Life, Chloe Brown by uh, Talia Hibbert. Um, uh, you Should See Me in a Crown, a lovely YA novel by Leah Johnson. Basically, there are so many books to choose from. And the full list will be in the description below. Uh, have fun typing it up, babe. Thank you. Love you. Okay, you guys, seriously, I don't want to say goodbye, but I hope you have a great freaking holiday. And we'll see you in 2021. Credit time. Host Phoebe Lynn Robinson. Producer Phoebe Lynn Robinson and British Bake Off editor British Bake Off theme song Gavin Turk. Intern Sasha and Malia Obama. The last episode, guys. Thanks for your help. Yeah, I know. So if you guys, if there's any other um, people interested in being an intern, <laughs> like Rihanna... Oh, maybe. You know. Maybe Queen Bee can help out. Yeah, Beyonce. She's got some time on her hands. Yeah, right? yeah. So, you know, Blue Ivy, she's young. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, holler at me, guys. Bono, if you want to intern, that'd oh, be great. Oh, yeah, that'd be good. God, you got to give white guys a chance. You'll get them out for us, wouldn't you? <laughs> Cheerio! Cheerio!